Uh, last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday, right? It's the day that we celebrate the birth of the church. The word Pentecost means 50 days, like most big Jewish holidays, that the day just refers to something significant that happened in the story of the people of God. The biggest holiday in the story of the people of God is Passover. That marked the time when the Israel people, the Israelite people were freed from slavery after 400 years in Egypt. 50 days later, their leader, Moses, goes up a mountain, experiences encounters the God who has freed them from slavery and is given the law of God, given the Ten Commandments. And so that experience is, is um, commemorated, is remembered by the Jewish community as Shavuot. In Greek, it's Pentecost. It means 50 days. Then skip way forward to the New Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years later, and about a little bit after the ministry of Jesus, you got about a hundred or so followers of Jesus, and they're gathered together in this room to celebrate this, to celebrate Pentecost. They celebrated Passover 49 days earlier. That was when Jesus celebrated the Last Supper. Now it's Pentecost morning, and they've gathered together for worship, and something so significant happens that now today, when we think of the word Pentecost, we don't even remember the Old Testament story. Because the New Testament story is so significant and profound, that takes over as the main dynamic for the church. What we remember is that on Pentecost, God's Spirit came down, filled the followers of Jesus with His Spirit just after breakfast, and by lunch, 3,000 people had been baptized and were new followers of Christ, right? It was the birth of the church. These were Jewish people who had become convinced by what they saw and by what they heard that Jesus was, in fact, the long-expected Messiah of God, the anointed one, the chosen one who would come and redeem Israel. And just like that, the Christian church is born. So consider this. The Christian church began as a group of faithful Jews who worshipped God embraced God's Son, and were filled with God's Spirit. The church began as a group of faithful Jews who worshipped God the Father, embraced Jesus as God the Son, and were then filled with God the Holy Spirit. And the question that we're going to address for the next three Sundays is this. What difference does that make? <laughs> what, what, what was this new community of spirit filled Jesus people going to do? And how would that group be good for the world? In what ways was this beloved community, that's a phrase I'll borrow from Dr. Martin Luther King, in what ways was this beloved community good for the planet, good for humanity, good for the world? And then who are we to be, this community called Emmaus, here in Placer County, who are we to be in light of the coming of God's Holy Spirit on Pentecost so many years Ago, Who are we to be today? All right? So let's look at Acts chapter 2. I'm going to walk us through this pattern that emerges in this, in the beginning part of Luke's history of the church. Luke is a gospel writer. He also writes the book of Acts. It is the history of the early Christian movement. In the beginning of this book, he follows the pattern. Here's the pattern. He talks about an event. Then he'll talk about a sermon that describes or explains the event. Then there'll be a response to the sermon. And finally, he, as the narrator, will back up and give you a summary statement. This is what just happened. Then he dives back into another event, a sermon which explains the event, the response to that sermon, and then he backs up again and gives a summary statement. This is what's going on here. 
So I'm going to quickly summarize two of these early events, sermons and responses. It'll feel fast, and then I'll slow way down, and we'll look at the summary statements, two of them, one in Acts 2 and one in Acts 4. And then we're going to answer the question, what difference does this make with one really focused and specific sentence? And then I'll offer a few observations, and we'll be done, all right? Ready to rock? Okay, here we go. Luke introduces the book of Acts with this kind of sets the table for the story he's about to tell in chapter 1. In chapter 2, the first major event in Acts is described. It is this, that the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. They're to get, here's how it happens. They're together. This is Acts chapter 2. They're together in one place. Suddenly, the, the place is filled with sound. Something like a violent wind, it's filled with something like fire above them. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They start worshiping and praising God in languages they did not learn in school. Outside, pilgrims from all around Jerusalem and the surrounding country and area are gathered for the Pentecost festivities. These are people of Jewish descent who have been dispersed over the last thousand years, but they've come back together They've come from places that we would know as Turkey and Egypt and Syria, and they've gathered in Jerusalem, and they hear the wonders of God being proclaimed in their languages. And then this crowd asks this question, what is going on here? So that's the event. Here's the first sermon. Chapter 2, verse 14. Peter stands up and begins, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you, right? Explain the whole thing. Here's what happens. His sermon essentially has five points. Here they are. Uh, It's the last days. This is a fulfillment of what the prophet Joel said would happen. All this weird, supernatural, speaking in tongues, prophesying stuff, read about it in Joel. Secondly, Jesus accredited himself to all of us through miracles. Third, you killed him. Fourth, God raised him from the dead. And fifth, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both God or Lord and Christ. That is the one who is the master and the chosen one of God. That's Peter's sermon in about 25 seconds. And then here's the response, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people embrace Peter's message and they're baptized. Bam. Opening scene, super intense. Acts is out of the gate. Then Luke, who remember is not there, he's not even Jewish. He joins Paul later, but he researches this and he writes this summary of this church. He backs up now and he offers this summary statement. Read it with me here Um, in in Acts chapter 2. It begins with verse 42. He writes, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. First summary statement in Acts. So what's Luke doing? Well, he's answering questions like, what difference did Pentecost make? 
That's what he's doing. He's answering questions like, what happened to the followers of Jesus as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit? He's answering questions like, what is the value of a good church in this world? And his answer is simply to summarize the actions of the early spirit-filled Christians. What are they doing? They're learning together. They're fellowshipping together. They're eating together, apparently both in a formal holy communion in worship kind of sense, as well as in a less formal come over to my house for dinner today kind of sense, because actually both are mentioned. They're praying together. And then Luke takes note of something that's really practically demonstrative of the level to which these early Christians are truly sharing life. It's remarkable to him. It's remarkable to us, I think. He takes special notice of it because he wants us to see just how this practically plays out. I'm talking about verse 44 and 45. I'll read it to you again. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. What, what do you mean by that? Well, they sold their property and possessions, and they gave to anyone who had need. What's he saying? He's saying they shared their stuff. They shared their resources. They shared their money. They didn't see their private property as exclusively their own. They shared all their resources. Their mantra would have been something like, it's not mine, but I have access to all of it. It's not yours, but you've got access to all of it. It's not my truck. It's our truck, right? So there's this remarkable and also very practical level of sharing life in the early Christian church. It characterizes the early Christian church. They are sharing life. All right, then Luke uses the same pattern to continue telling his story. Um, let me just do that again here. In Acts chapter 3, the second big event, big sermon, and big response to the sermon. Again, I'll just summarize. Ready? Here's the second big event. One day, Peter and John, these are two of Jesus' apostles, they're going to pray at the temple at the set time of prayer. It's about 3 in the afternoon. As they go through the gate into the temple courts, they encounter this guy who's been begging there for a long time. They say, look at us. He looks at them. They don't avert their eyes. That's interesting. They look right at the man. They say, give us your attention. He gives them their attention. He thinks he's going to get money from them. He asks them for money. They say, we don't have any money, but what we have, we'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And the man gets up and walks and jumps and starts praising God and goes into the temple with them. This, as you would expect, attracts a big crowd Partly because they recognize this dude. He's been there for, a, they all just walked past this guy, right? He's been at the gate for years. He's been crippled since birth. He's 40. And now he's walking and jumping and praising God. That's the second event. Here's the second sermon. Once again, it's Peter who preaches. He begins, why does this surprise you? It's not by our power that this man has been healed. It's by the power of Jesus Christ, whom you disowned and killed, that this man is healed before you today. And Peter goes on with that for the rest of chapter 3. He is on fire. And then the Jewish priests gather, and the temple guard comes together, because there's quite a disturbance happening now in the temple courts. And when they hear Peter say that Jesus was raised from the dead, that's the game changer. Resurrection is the, is the mission, I mean the message. Resurrection is the message, and that changes whole things for people. So they grab John, and they grab Peter, and I think they might also grab the guy who used to be crippled. It's not clear. They throw him in jail for the night. 
In the morning, the rulers gather, the high priests gather. This is the same crew that crucified Jesus about 50 days ago. They call out Peter and John. They call out the formerly crippled man. And they say, by what power or by what name did you do this? And it's like Peter says, okay, are we done with that little interruption? As I was saying, and he just continues to preach this sermon, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, he's very clear on that, but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. And then Peter says, salvation can be found in no other name under heaven. And then this is the response, and it's very different from the first response. The response to Peter's first sermon is remorse. What should we do? The response to Peter's second sermon is rebellion. <clears throat> the priests say, stop talking about Jesus. And if you keep talking about Jesus, we're going to do to you what we did to Jesus. So knock it off. And then they let him go. And Peter and John go back to the Christian community and they pray together. And after they pray, the place is shaken and they are filled with the Holy Spirit again. <laughs> Then Luke, who remember is the narrator, he backs up and he offers a second summary statement and it's beautiful. Here it is. Acts chapter 4 verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Example, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, he plays in later in Paul's conversion and discipleship, which means son of encouragement. That's what his name was. That's what they called him. He sold a field that he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. What's Luke doing? He's answering questions like, what, what difference did Pentecost make? What was the result of this, the followers of Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit? He's recounting events, he's recording sermons, he's revealing people's responses, but then he's coming back to these summary statements which communicate this deeper foundational dynamic. What is it? It is that they were sharing life. They were sharing life. Listen, the context of all this courage and power and healing was this beloved community of God into which he continually poured his Holy Spirit. I'm going to say that again, it's really important. The context of all this power and courage and healing was this beloved community, this little church into which God continued to pour his Holy Spirit, in which God continued to allow his presence to be known and experienced. And when Luke, who's the narrator, gives us a peek behind the curtain into the inner workings of the early Christian church, what he wants us to see is that even more amazing than 3,000 baptisms in one morning, even more amazing than a 40-year-old crippled man being raised to walk and to worship God, was this. This is a community which is so unified in heart and mind that there were no needy people among them. <laughs> That's the profound thing. 
We'd probably heard a million sermons on 3,000 baptisms in a day. And that's, fan- that's beautiful. But you know what happened to those 3,000 people? There's no needy among them anymore. That's, a, that's amazing. That's remarkable. Let's just let that sink in. Acts 4.34, if you're looking for it. There were no needy persons among them. Luke is describing Christianity as a spirituality that makes a real difference in real life. That's what he's doing. What difference did the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the disciples at Pentecost make? Well, it launched a new spiritual community which grows to several thousand people in a few days and there were no needy persons among them. Now, there are several ways that we could answer the question, what difference did the Holy Spirit pouring out on the disciples make? We could talk about courage. We could talk about healing. We could talk about great preaching. But the most compelling answer, in my opinion, both as a pastor of a community of a few hundred and as a father of a domestic community of five, the most profound answer, in my opinion, is this. There were no needy persons among them. Luke's fuller statement is this. This is verse 33 and 34 of chapter 4. God's grace. Write this down. Fathers, write this down. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. All right, let me share four quick observations about this. And as you hear me reflect on this truth, I want to invite you to consider this. I hope you'll think about this in light of two specific communities. The first is this church community, and the second is your family. I want you to try to apply what I'm saying both to this beloved community called Emmaus and to this beloved community called your family, okay? First observation, Luke makes it very clear that it is the Holy Spirit of God that is enabling and empowering the early Christian community to share life at a spiritual level. In other words, the fuel that empowers this beloved community to be so profoundly effective is the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't miss this, like, unfortunately, very obvious truth, right? They're filled with the Holy Spirit. The early church, in other words, is not just a bunch of college buddies who tell the same stories and listen to the same music and vote for the same politicians and wear the same kind of clothes, and so they're all, they just get along so well. That's not what's going on here. This is a distinctly spiritual community. We're not just talking about any old community, like a community that's based around sports or a community that's based around a neighborhood or a school or an ethnicity. We're talking about a community that is filled with the presence of God. So we're not talking about a family that just happens to get along really well. We're not talking about a family who's developed good conflict resolution skills. We're talking about a family that is filled with the presence of God. That's the difference. That's the difference. That's the, that's the magic sauce, if you want to put it like that, right? This is so important. Think about the Christian community in three circles. You got the 12 followers, the 12 apostles, right? These are an incredibly varied group of men. They include, for instance, Matthew, who was a tax collector. That means he worked for the oppressive Roman government. They, it also includes Judas, who was a zealot, 
who's ascribing to this philosophy that says the way you deal with an oppressive government is you just kill them. <laughs> so you've got the let's join them, Matthew, and the let's beat them, let's knife them, Judas, in the same little group. They are varied, and yet they're together. What's the next ring out? The hundred or so early followers of Christ. Very varied group. We got Mary, the Blessed Virgin, and we got Mary Magdalene, a checkered past, right? And they're coming together. They're not all homogeneous. They're coming together. They're, they're worshiping together. Add 3,000 on Pentecost who were baptized. Who are these people? Uh, these people are from 15 other cultures who speak at least 12 different languages. In other words, a far more ethnically diverse crowd than is here, okay? A far more diverse crowd in almost any way than what we have here, and yet they are one in heart and mind. Does that mean they don't have any differences? No. They've got all kinds of differences. That's what I'm trying to say. They've got all kinds of differences. What it means is they place their common love for Jesus higher than their personal preferences. That's what it means. They place their common love for Jesus at a more important uh, priority than their personal preferences. And it's the Holy Spirit that enables them to do that. You don't just figure that out. It's the Holy Spirit that enables them to do that. It was a spiritual community. They were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. So it's really important that we connect these two things. How is it possible that in this blessed community there were no needy among them? Well, Luke makes it really clear. There's a significant spiritual dynamic at work here. What is it? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. So before you try to talk about the strategy of a church to meet the local needs... Or before you try to talk about how can we as a family get along better, you should pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? We should pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We should pray that our family members are filled with the Holy Spirit, okay? Don't try to strategize your way around this distinctly spiritual dynamic. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. A community, where is a community where there are no needy persons? Well, it is a distinctly Christian, a distinctly spiritual uh, community, a community in which the Spirit of God is free. Secondly, second observation, in order to authentically share life at a level that actually impacts people's needs, well, there's a few practical requirements that are needed as well, right? So it's a spiritual reality we're talking about. We're also talking about a real practical reality. What am I, like things like trust, Trust specifically in leadership. Nobody's selling fields and bringing the money and laying it at Peter's feet if they don't trust Peter. Am I right? Right? None of you who give money to this church, let me put it a different way. If you're not giving money to this church, it, it may be because you haven't yet trusted the leadership. You haven't yet come to a place of believing in and buying into the priorities in which, uh, under which we're investing our money and investing the, the resources that we have. I mean, trust is just an essential for this kind of a community to happen where real life is being shared. Another practical requirement is commitment. What begins to erode this shared life in the early church a little bit later is people who are um, not committed to the beloved community but still want to benefit from the beloved community. They're not committed to the beloved community, but they still want to benefit from the beloved community. Put it in the context of a family. Maybe there's seven people in your family, and they're like, they are so committed to the family. They're givers. That's what they do. 
in the family. They give. And then maybe there's one or two, and they're just not that committed to the family. They're takers primarily. That is not sustainable. It breaks down. So this is an example of a practical requirement for really sharing life together. There needs to be commitment. A third example is responsibility, a willingness to do something uh, with what's been given, to be able to receive help, yes, but also turn around and give help back to others, to be responsible to the community, uh, not to be a consumer, but to be responsible back to the community. So in order for there to be no needy people among them, there's some practical things. There's probably a lot of practical things. Examples, trust, commitment, responsibility. Third observation. Um, there's a dynamic, progressive, ongoing nature of sharing life together, which is important for us to realize. Luke is not saying that there were no people with needs in the church. This is an important distinction. Luke is not saying there were no people with needs. What he's saying is those needs were being addressed. Do you see the difference? In other words, this was not a church full of self-sufficient individuals who had their life all together so they were allowed to join the club. This is not what's happening at all. This is a beloved community of people who are simply taking one another's needs seriously and seeing them not just as your problem, Bruce, but now it's also my problem, right? It's not just your need, but it's also my need, or Nick, or anyone else, right? It's not just an individual's issue, it's our issues. There was empathy that led to action. These are now our needs, and we will meet them together. This is when it would be so encouraging to share with you really personal stories about what's happening in this church. It's just not appropriate in most cases. But there are people here who have said, I see kids who need to go to camp. They're not my kids, but they're our kids, so I'm going to give money so that these kids can go to camp. There are people in this room who have said, I know that there are sick people here. It's, it's, it's personal. It's, um, it's difficult. I will take care of the sick person here because it's not just them who's sick. It's we who are hurting. Uh, there are people here who have said, I know they're in need of housing. So we should do, and we will, we will do something about that. We will provide an opportunity for housing for these people. It's just so beautiful. The reason there were no, here's what I'm trying to say. The reason there were no needy among them isn't because no one had needs. There were lots of needs. It's because their needs were being addressed. That's so exciting to me. That's so powerful to me. And that leads to my fourth and final observation. Finally, the way the church lived, the way they shared life, it was their most effective testimony to the truth of God, to the world. The fact that there were no needy among them, it was prophetic. What does that mean? It means it was revealing the truth to the world. Just the way they lived together was their best message. This goes way back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 15, if you want to check it out. God says to Moses, who tells this new community, fresh out of slavery, there should be no poor among you. Deuteronomy 14, 5. Seven verses later, he says, there will always be poor in the land. And Jesus quotes both of those verses in different places. What's the distinction? There's always going to be poor people around us. When they become some of us, part of us, there should be no poor anymore because we should meet their need together, right? The early Christians became known for the way they loved one another. They became known for the way they cared for one another. This was very attractive 
to the world. It's very attractive to a needy world. When we authentically share life together in ways that really matter, spiritually, emotionally, financially, when we raise our kids together, friends, when women in our community gather together to encourage one another, when men in our community lay down their pride and individualism and are vulnerable and transparent about their needs and fears, when the church shares life, good days, bad days, in ways that are authentic, when that becomes our reputation, have you heard about that church in the theater? I hear there's real good community there. They share life together. People want to be a part of that. They want to be a part of that. When our families share life together, when we celebrate wins, when we grieve losses, when we address needs, and when we love each other through it all, those are the families where all the kids in the neighborhood want to hang out. Have you noticed that? That's where all the kids want to hang out after school because that's a beloved community. I can bring my needs there and my needs are going to be met. It's a place where real life is shared. Needs are welcome. And they're addressed with love. May God enable us to become a beloved community. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this church. I'm so grateful for it. And I pray that you would empower us by your very presence, your Holy Spirit, to become the community that you've designed for us to be. Forgive us for our self-centeredness, our obsession with private property, our defensive posture, Help us to open up our hearts, our minds, our hands to embrace one another as brothers and sisters to truly share life as we have dreamed of doing now for 14 years. May you help us to share life together in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.